In the late 1980s, my wife and I were living in St. Albans, England, and we were conducting a series of evangelistic meetings in the New Gallery Centre in London. Now that meant that every day we either had to take our car and drive into London for an hour, or we had to take the train from St. Albans down to King's Cross Station, get on the underground at King's Cross and go down from there to Piccadilly Circus and walk up Regent Street to the New Gallery. We usually left at some place around 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, got into London at some place around um, 10 o'clock, taught classes, and by the time we taught in the mornings, and visited people in the afternoon and had a meeting in the evening, it would be 9 or 10 o'clock at night and we would get home. Now, when you do that week after week, month after month, you're pretty exhausted. And I remember a distinct day that I was really tired. We had been battling the city, working in London for these very months, and I was pretty exhausted, didn't have much energy that day, and I was walking up the stairs into the New Gallery Center, and I looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw a group of my students praying for me. And as they were on their knees, they were praying a prayer like this, Dear Lord, please bless Pastor Mark. He looks a little tired today. He looks a little weary today. Lift his spirits and give him some energy today. I will tell you, when I heard that prayer, new energy surged through my body. I bounded up those stairs like a young man 23 years old again. It's a wonderful thing to have somebody that is praying for you. When you know that somebody cares enough to pray for you, that bonds you with them, that unites you with them. It's a wonderful thing if you know your spouse is praying for you. When you know your husband's praying for you. When you know your wife's praying for you. You may be traveling on a trip. And in your mind's eye, you see your wife on her knees with your name on her lips praying for you. Brings you a great peace in your life. When children know that their parents are praying for them, it gives them a sense of stability in their life. It gives them a sense of foundation in their life. When a, when a child knows in their teens that their parents are praying for them. I remember when I was 17 years old, I didn't know Christ. And I remember I'd come home from playing basketball and I'd watch the late, late show in the late 50s. And I saw more snow on the television than I saw picture. Some of you can't remember that. And as I lay there, not, not knowing Christ at all, I'd look through the crack in my door into the living room and I saw my dad by that old black and white vinyl chair with the stuffing coming out and the holes in the chair, and Dad is on his knees praying for his son. It's a wonderful thing when you know that you have parents that are praying for you. It's a wonderful thing, too, when you have friends that are praying for you. And when they do that, the bonds of divine love unite them to your heart. It's a wonderful thing to know that somebody who cares is praying for you, but there's something even more wonderful than a wife praying for you, than a son or daughter that prays for their, their parent or a parent that prays for their children or a friend that prays, something more wonderful. It's to know 
that Jesus is in heaven right now and that he's praying for you. Your name is on his lips. Your concern is in his heart. Your anxieties and fears and worries matter to him. To know that whatever struggle you are facing right now, whatever decisions you have to make right now in your life, that Jesus Christ is praying for you. The very famous Bible commentator Robert Murray McShane puts it this way, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference for Jesus is praying for you. If I could hear Christ, let's suppose I walked out of church today and over there in the side room I heard prayers. And let's suppose that Jesus was there praying and your name was on his lips. McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Jesus' name, your name is on Jesus' lips. There in the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary, Jesus is praying for you. Now, one of the most comprehensive chapters in all the Bible is John, the 17th chapter. And our study this morning comes from the 17th chapter of the book of John. God's going to speak to you through this chapter this morning. God's going to minister to your heart through these verses this morning. And the Spirit of God is going to touch somebody here today. New light is going to dawn in your mind. New hope is going to fill your heart. New encouragement is going to radiate through your being. John, the 17th chapter. This is Jesus' great intercessory prayer. This chapter is one of the most inspiring in all the New Testament. Before Jesus lay Gethsemane's agony, before Jesus lay Peter's be Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial and Pilate's cowardness and Herod's skepticism and the Pharisees' coldness and the Roman soldiers' brutality and Satan's glee. See, before Jesus, there was the cross and Golgotha's mountain and Calvary's hill. Before Jesus, there were the nails that would be driven through his hands and the spear that would wound his side and the nails go through his feet. All that lay before him. And there in John 17, Jesus prays for three groups. First, in the first part of the prayer, he prays for himself. But very shortly, he prays for his disciples. And then very shortly, he makes the transition. He prays for you and he prays for me. We begin our study this morning in John 17, verse 1. I direct your attention to that. Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, every time you read in the New Testament the hour, it's the hour of the cross, the hour of Golgotha's mountain. It's the hour of Calvary's hill. It's the hour that Jesus would hang between heaven and earth. It's the hour of the cross, the hour of the nails and the betrayal. So Jesus says, the hour has come. Then Jesus says something that is absolutely incredibly amazing. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The hour of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his pain, the hour of his agony was the hour of his greatest glory. When you think of that, Jesus would hang between heaven and earth. He would hang as a condemned sinner 
bearing the guilt of all humanity. And that hour would be the hour of the hiding of his father's face. That hour would be the hour that darkness surrounded him. That hour would be the hour that he sensed the lostness of all humanity. The sins of all humanity rested upon him. And when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he felt in his very being, in his physical flesh, he felt in his very heart and mind the condemnation that every sinner will feel when they're lost and lost for all eternity. It was not the nails through his hands that gave him the most pain. It was the sparing of the sins of all humanity. And he tasted death for every human being. And he felt the pains of what it would be like for millions of people who would be lost. He felt that lostness. And scripture says that the hour he would look death in the face, he would triumphantly conquer. And that would be the hour of his greatest glory. His hour of greatest suffering was the hour of his greatest glory. There are times that the hour of our greatest suffering, there are times that the hour of our greatest trials, there are times that the hour of our greatest difficulties, our greatest challenges, are the hour of our greatest glory. Because it's in those hours when we recognize our utter inability to deal with the situation that God comes through in powerful ways for his glory. It is in those moments of our absolute weakness that God reveals his absolute strength. It is in those times of our greatest challenges that we experience God's greatest power. It is not the avoidance of problems or challenges or difficulties that brings glory to God. It is facing them in the name of Christ. It's conquering them through his power and overcoming them by his grace. Now, Jesus prayed for four things here in John chapter 17. When we come to the prayer for Christ's disciples, he prays first that they would be guarded or protected. He prays secondly that they would be sanctified. He prays thirdly that they would be unified. And he prays fourthly that they would be glorified. So let's look at the four things that Jesus prayed for. What did Jesus pray for in that garden so long ago, 2,000 years ago? What did Jesus pray for on that night? What is he praying for right now? What he prayed for then, he's praying for now. You were in his mind then, and you are in his mind now. What he was seeking God for then, he appears before the judgment bar of God for you now. He's praying for four things. Let's look at what they are. John 17, and let your eyes drop down to verse 6. What did Jesus pray for in that garden that night? John 17, and we're looking at verse 6, and we'll concentrate particularly on verse 11. John 17, verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men who you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So as Jesus prays, he seeks the Father, and he says, they were yours, they were not mine. The glorious reality is this. Whatever you go through in life, you are Christ's. When you come to Jesus, you become a son and daughter of God. 
He holds you in his hand. Jesus says there, verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you've given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Now Jesus begins praying. He's not thinking about the nails through his hands. He's not thinking about the crown of thorns upon his head. He's not thinking about Judas' betrayal or Peter's denial or the Jews' rejection or the Romans' crucifixion. He's not thinking about the disciples that will forsake him and flee. What love is this? He is thinking about you. He's thinking about me in the hour of his greatest suffering. He says, I pray for them, verse 9. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. They are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Now notice verse 11. That's the text we want to concentrate on. He focuses this first aspect of his prayer. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. So Jesus is going to leave. Soon he will ascend to heaven. Soon he'll be out of sight of earth and inside of heaven. Soon the disciples will no longer be able to visibly see him anymore. What is his concern? He says, verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world. These are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through those, through your name, those whom you've given me that they may be as one. Now notice Jesus didn't pray that his disciples would be taken out of the world. Christianity does not release us from our problems. It provides the wisdom and strength to solve them. Christianity does not offer us a life in which problems are escaped. It offers us a life in which problems are faced and conquered. Christianity does not offer us a life of ease. It offers us a life of triumphant warfare. We're in a battle between good and evil. We're in a battle between Christ and Satan. And the great controversy wages. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Keep your finger in John 17, but go to Ephesians 6, verse 12. Jesus never prays that his disciples would be taken out of the world. Some people think that Christianity is peace and joy all the time. There is an inner peace. There is an inner joy. But it's the peace in conflict. It's the joy in struggle. Because we are in a battle We're in the enemy's land. The controversy wages between good and evil. So if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through a battle, if you are facing the wiles of the enemy, don't become discouraged about that. You're not off the map. You're on the map. Because Christianity does not promise release from our trials until the day we walk streets of gold and we sing the glory song on Sea of Glass. But Jesus promises peace in our trials. Jesus promises strength in our difficulty. Jesus promises wisdom in our ignorance. Notice what the Bible says, Ephesians 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So there is a battle, there is a struggle. The devil is a vicious foe and daily the battle rages. Jesus never prayed that they would find, his followers would find escape. He prayed that they would find victory. Now did you notice that word in John 17 verse 11? We need to go back to it. John the 17th chapter and the 11th verse. 
Notice the word that Jesus prays in this first part of his prayer. John 17, verse 11, Jesus prays. He says, I pray that you would keep them through your name. He says, now I'm no longer in the world, verse 11. But these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name. Now, the word keep is an interesting word. In the original Greek language, it means... It, it has the impression of guarded. Guard them, O Lord. It has the impression of protect them. As Jesus prays, he commits his followers to his Father's care. Every Christian can claim the keeping power of God. God will never allow us to go through any test that he does not hold us in his hand. You know, many years ago, the Native American Indians had a very unique practice of training their young warriors. When these young warriors were 13 years old, they had been trained in tracking, they had been trained in scouting, they had been trained in hunting, and they had been trained in fishing. On the 13th birthday of one of these young Indian braves, the young brave was brought at night out into the woods. He was brought miles and miles and miles into the woods, five, six, seven, eight miles into the deepest, darkest, dense forest. And he was left there to spend all night alone in the forest. Every cracking twig brought fear to that young brave's heart. Every squirrel that ran up a tree brought fright to that young brave. When he it, it seemed like eternity. And as he stood there, now he was, the young brave was blindfolded when he was brought there. And the blindfold was taken off and he was left alone, had to spend all night. That was his initiation into adulthood. He visualized wild animals ready to pounce upon him. Throughout the night, he was terrified. It appeared that the night would never end. It appeared like it was an eternity. But when dawn broke, and the first light broke through the interior of the forest, looking around, the boy saw flowers and trees in the outline of the path. Then, to his utter astonishment, he saw a man standing a few feet from him. It was his father, with a bow and arrow, standing guard over that young brave all night. However terrified you are of what you're going through in life, however worried you are, however anxious you are, Whatever battles you face and whatever challenges come your way, our Heavenly Father answers Christ's prayer for you and he's keeping guard over you. He's keeping watch over you. In Scripture, the Bible says that we are never far from the Father's eyes. In the darkest night, we tremble with fear. He is there. He is on guard to protect, preserve, and guide us. 
we can have absolute confidence that not only did Jesus pray for us in John chapter 17, but Jesus is praying for us right now. Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We have a friend in the heavenly courts. That friend is praying for us. Your name is on his lips today. You're in his heart today. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Notice what the scripture says. Jesus prayed for us in the garden that night, and he's praying for us now. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives. What does Jesus do? He ever lives. What does he ever live to do? To make intercession for them. Notice, he is in heaven making intercession for you right now. It says he's able to save to the uttermost. What is Jesus able to do? He's able to save. How much is he able to save? To the uttermost. Now notice what it says, he's making intercession for us. What does that mean? In very practical terms, what does it mean that Jesus is in heaven today making intercession for you? It makes, let me make it simple. Here's what it means. The intercession of Christ in the sanctuary above simply means this, that Jesus is doing everything you need for salvation. In Christ, forgiveness is ours. It's abundant. In Christ, freedom from guilt is ours. It is there. In Christ, the gift of eternal life is ours. In Christ, victory over sin is ours. In Christ, strength to overcome is ours. In Christ, hope for the future is, on, is ours. You can rejoice that everything we need for salvation is ours in Christ. The intercession of Christ in heaven's sanctuary simply means that through Christ, all of heaven's blessings flow from the throne of God to you today. Forgiveness flows, freedom from guilt flows, freedom from condemnation flows, strength flows, wisdom flows. All of those gifts are yours because of the intercession of Christ. Now notice something significant. Who is this that is praying for you? You know, it's one thing if your husband's praying for you. Praise God for that. It's one thing if your wife is praying for you. Praise God for that. It's one thing if a friend is praying for you. Praise God for that. What does it mean when we say Jesus is praying for us? Who is this Christ? The purpose of the Gospel of John is to introduce the divinity of Christ. See, each of the Gospels have a different function. That's why I have four of them. Matthew tells is the best on the sermons of Christ. It reveals the teachings of Christ. Mark is the best on the humanity of Christ and Christ interfacing with human beings. Luke is the, are the parables of Christ, the stories of Christ as a physician. Luke thought in, in stories, parables, illustrations. The Gospel of John was written to show the divinity of Christ. 
When you come to John 17, it presupposes that you understand who it is that's praying for you. In John chapter 1, the titles of Christ are introduced. So let's go to John chapter 1. And we're going to breeze through John chapter 1 to get the significance of what it means that Jesus is praying for us. John, the first chapter, introduces this whole idea of who the living Christ is. John chapter 1. And we're looking there at John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who is it that is praying for you? He is the one that is the Almighty, the Eternal, the one that was coexistent with God, the one who was with God from all eternity. Let your eyes drop down to verse 3. Who is it that's praying for you? Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Who is it that's praying for you? He is the all-powerful creator. He is the one that spoke, and worlds came into existence. He is the one that spoke, and there... The earth was carpeted with living green and stars appeared and sun, moon, and stars. He's the all-powerful creator. He's praying for you. Who is it that's praying for you? Verse 4, in him was life and life was the light of men. He is the one who lights every heart born into this world and by his Holy Spirit begins to draw them to himself. Who is it that's praying for you? Verse 16, and of his fullness we all have received grace and truth. Who is it that's praying for you? He's the fountain of grace. He's the fountain of truth. Who is it that's praying for you? Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son. That word begotten means unique one, the one who is one of a kind. It comes from the Greek word mono, meaning one, genes, meaning kind. He is the only begotten Son. He's one of a kind. Why is he one of a kind? He's existed with the Father. The expression, the bosom of the Father, means that he's with the Father forever, from eternity. Who is it that's praying for you? He is the one who is God. He is the one who is the creator. He is the one that lights every man that comes into the world. He is the one who has existed from all eternity. He is the fountain of grace and truth, and your name is on his lips. John 1, verse 29, who is it that prays for you? Then the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is it that's praying for you? The one that died for you is the one that's praying for you. John 1, verse 49, who is it that's praying for you and for me? John 1, verse 49, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. When we sense this, we sense that it's the Almighty, the All-Knowing, the All-Wise, the All-Powerful Christ that's praying for us. It's the Jesus that has never lost a battle with Satan yet. It is the Christ that triumphed over Satan in his life and death. It is the crucified, ascended, resurrected, interceding, coming again Lord that is praying for us. Isn't that incredible good news? How can you be discouraged? How can you be downhearted? Whatever the devil throws at you, the eternal Christ, the all-powerful creator, the fountain of grace and truth, the one of light and glory, the lamb of God, the son of God, the king of the universe, 
Your name is on his lips. He's praying for you. Now the second aspect of Jesus' prayer is found in John chapter 17, verse 16 and 17. First he prays that we will be kept, protected, guarded by the power of God. Now the second thing he prays is that we would be sanctified through his grace. John the 17th chapter. You're looking there at verse 16 and seven, 15, 16, and 17. Now notice again Jesus' prayer. He says in John 17, verse 15 to 17, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now it's not Jesus' prayer that we go off and live in some monastery someplace. That wasn't his prayer. Not that we'd be taken out of the world, but rather that we be kept from the evil. Now, how can we be kept from the evil of the world? They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. We're sons and daughters of God. We're not of this culture of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Here, Jesus says sanctify. What does sanctify mean? Sanctify means set apart. Sanctify means to make holy. It's a word used in the Old Testament of the priests of Israel. They were set apart. The truth of God's word sets us apart. It sanctifies or cleanses us in our inner soul. Now, when Jesus uses, when John uses the word world, what does he mean? If you look through the Gospel of John, there are four things about the world in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, they are not of the world. What does that mean? They're not of the culture of this world. What is the teaching of the Gospel of John regarding the world? There are four things about it. First, the world is deluded. It seeks meaning where meaning is not. It seeks for purpose where purpose is not. It seeks for pleasure where pleasure is not. And the Word of God reveals re reality. It reveals a loving God who cares and has the power to change our lives. When we saturate our minds with the Word of God, we can sing with John Wesley, I once was blind, but now I see. See, the world tends to shape us. It tends, us to, tends to dumb us down into the culture of the world. But you read the Word of God, and it transforms the brain cells. It transforms the thinking process. And we see with a new reality. First, the, word of God, the, the world is deluded, deceived. Secondly, the, wor the, the world... The world is deluded. The world is deceived. The Word of God speaks to us and it opens our minds in that blindness. Secondly, the world is a dangerous place according to John's Gospel. It's filled with the temptations of Satan. And daily we're bombarded with those temptations that can easily overwhelm us. And what John, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I'm praying, don't let my people be bombarded with the dangers of this world saturate their minds with the word so they can see a new reality. So the world is dangerous. Thirdly, in the Gospel of John, the world is defiled. It's spiritually fallen. It's corrupt. It's wicked to the core. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we saturate our minds with the word of God, we are cleansed. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1, verse 21. We have some 14 billion brain cells or more. I never counted them. John 4, we're looking there at James chapter 1, 
When you read the Word of God, James 1, when you read the Word of God, the brain cells are transformed and the living Word enters the mind and cleanses the inner recesses of the brain. James chapter 1, you're looking there at verse 21. What is Jesus praying? He's praying that his people would not be too busy to study his word. He's praying that his people would not be so involved in making a living that they forget to make a life. He's praying that the world would not so encroach into our thinking process that we spend many seconds reading the word and hours in front of the TV screen. He's praying that we would not be too busy to have the transformation of the brain cells of our mind through the living word. When you're too busy to study the word. When life seems to choke out time for devotion. When the things of time crowd out the things of eternity. Remember a garden. And remember a night. And listen to the prayers of Jesus. Father, I pray, not that you'd take them out of the world, but I pray that, be, that they would be sanctified through my word. James 1, verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Notice what scripture says. It says the implanted word. As you read the word and you pray, God, implant your word in my mind. God, in the brain cells, may the creative energy of the word transform my thinking process. What did Jesus pray for in the garden that night? He prayed first that you always would be held in the Father's hand. That you'd be kept in trial, in temptation, in heartache and sorrow. That you'd sense Jesus' hand holding you. He prayed secondly, that when you were too busy to take time with God's word, you'd remember that Jesus is drawing you back through his prayers. He's praying that you'd be sanctified through the word. He's praying your mind will be cleansed through the word. He's praying that in his word you'd find strength and courage and hope. He's praying that the word would sanctify you. Now there is a third thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer. The world today that we live in is divided. It's fragmented. Governments are divided. Would you agree with me on that? Conflicts erupt in the workplace. We often have divided workplaces. Tensions arise in families. Friends are often separated by differing opinions. If there ever was a place that the unity of the gospel and the love of Christ ought to be revealed, it's in the church. And so in this prayer, Jesus prays for the unity of his church. Let's study it. 
John chapter 17. Jesus has prayed that his people would be kept by his power. Jesus has prayed that his disciples would be sanctified by his word. And Jesus prays for your family, your relationship, that it would be unified. Jesus prays that the church would be unified. Now notice the prayer of Christ. Now the reason unity, and we're looking at John 17, verse 20 to 23. The reason that unity is crucial to the witness and mission of the church is that the world is defined by conflict. The world is defined by broken relationships. The world is defined by dysfunctional families. The world is defined by fractured and nearly non-existent communities. And if the church can reveal the loving unity of Christ, it would be a sign to the world that God is at work and that no human effort could accomplish it. The love that we are to show to the world is to mirror the love that the Father has with the Son. Now notice, John 17, we start with verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who believe in me through your word. That's you, that's me. Jesus is praying that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. Now notice, he goes on to pray, pray, that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice the essence of the unity of the church when people with different ideas, when people with different cultures, when people with different backgrounds get together, when they, when they, when they express themselves on a committee in, in differing opinions, but in love and respect for one another, when cultures respect for one another, when we have this difference of background, unity is not everybody dressing the same, eating the same, thinking the same. Unity is a bondedness that we have in Christ. It's a recognition that we're sons and daughters in Christ. Some time ago, I read an amusing story. I don't know if it was, it was, it was true or not. Probably wasn't. It's okay if a preacher tells you a story, as long as, if he, if he tells you a story that's not true, as long as he tells you that it's not true. The ones you got to worry about are the ones that tell you stories that, that uh, anyway, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> All right, here's the story. Man is on a boat, traveling through the ocean. And as he travels through the ocean, he's alone. A storm comes up, and the storm overwhelms the boat. And the guy swims, and he goes on this little island, and it's a marooned island. Nobody lives there. It's one of these islands where nobody lives. So the first thing he does is get a hut, get, get twigs and stuff and branches. He builds this hut. Then he builds another hut. Then he builds another hut. He builds three huts. Nobody lives on the island except him. A year goes by. Two years go by. He's the only one on the island. And... Um, Pretty soon, a boat comes by, a rescue boat. And the rescue boat rescues the guy. But they see three huts, and they say, I thought no nobody lived on the island. And he said, what are the, the, the rescue guys, the captain of the boat said, what are those three huts for? He said, well, that first hut over there, that's where I lived. What about those other huts? He said, I had to worship God, so that's a church. I built a church in that second hut. The captain said, praise God, what's the other one over there, the third hut? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. 
you got the point. Some people are always looking for the perfect church. I'm looking for a church that's never going to offend me. Oh, man, that person didn't say hi to me. I don't think I'm going back there. Oh, there's a little conflict over there in the church. Why do you think God put you here to grow through conflict? To learn, to respect, to understand differences. That's why God puts us in church. What are you going to do? Go, go find a barren, uh, 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 an island someplace and build your huts? And then you get so discouraged with yourself. You leave that one and go to the next one, right? What did Jesus pray? The basis of all unity is this. Is the recognition that whatever backgrounds we have, we are all sons and daughters of God. The basis of all unity is to allow the glory of God to be reflected in all of our relationships. It is the recognition that just as the Father and Son were members of the Godhead, we are members of one spiritual family in Christ. I love the way Adam Clark, who is an old Bible commentator, sometimes you have to struggle with his language, but this is what Adam Clark said. He paraphrases John 17, you know, where Jesus says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one. Adam Clark paraphrases that, and it's brilliant. Here's what he says. I have communicated, he's, he's, he's paraphrasing Jesus' words, so this is Jesus speaking. I have communicated to all those who believe in me the glorious privilege of being sons and daughters of God, that all being adopted children of the same Father, they may abide in peace, love, and unity. When you become a little impatient with your brothers and sisters, remember, we're all part of the same family. We may have differences, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's this love for one another, not because we don't have differences, but in spite of those differences that unite our hearts. When you're becoming a little impatient in a committee meeting, and you are tempted to lash out a little too harshly, remember that person sitting across from you is part of the same family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is praying for the unity of his church. He's praying that those who have different opinions will be brought together in loving fellowship. You know, during World War II, Adolf Hitler commanded that all religious groups be united together. He didn't ban religion, but he united all religious groups for one reason. This is why Hitler did it, because he knew he could control them. And that's what he wanted to do. In the brethren group, the brethren group split over that. And when they split, half of them accepted to go with the state church that Hitler established. They were able to exist during the Second World War fairly well. The other half of the brethren group didn't do that. And they were persecuted, they were tormented, many were put in prison. It was a very horrible time for them. Many died in, in Hitler's concentration camps. At the end of the Second World War, there was bitterness 
and rankle, and there was a great division in the Brethren group because the war was over, but the one group said the other group had compromised, and the other group argued with the other group, and it was horrible. There was just, it was deep, deep, deep-seated feelings. The leaders of both groups decided to get together, and they had a spiritual retreat. And in that spiritual retreat, this is what happened. They said, we're going to take the first two days and simply pray. And as they prayed, the Spirit of God came down in that retreat, and the Holy Spirit began speaking to their hearts. There were confessions of bitterness, hostility, tears flowed. And, Fra and, and, the, and the philosopher theologian Francis Schaeffer tells about that meeting. He talked to somebody that was there. And the person that was there said this, when God broke my heart and showed me my bitterness and hostility, I was able to reconcile. But when I looked for others who I supposed were bitter and hostile, the barriers were there. When the Holy Spirit breaks your heart and you shift your attention, not from what the other person has done to you, but what Christ can do in your heart to reconcile with the other person, barriers are broken down. What did Jesus pray for? He prayed your life would always be in his hand, that you would be guarded by his love and grace always. He prayed that his word through the Spirit would sanctify your mind. He prayed that his people would be unified, recognizing difference and misunderstanding. He prayed that there would be no hostility in our hearts. But there's a fourth thing that Jesus prayed for. John chapter 17, verse 24 to 26. John 17 Verse 24 to 26, there's the last thing that Jesus prayed for. This was the most important thing. His prayer comes to a glorious climax. His prayer comes to this glorious climax. John 17, and you're looking there at verse 24 to 26. Father, I desire. Jesus is praying. Can you hear his prayer? He prayed this on earth. He's praying it in heaven's sanctuary above. Father, I desire. Verse 24, Father, this is my wish. Father, this is my dream. Father, this is what I long for more than anything else. Father, this is my will. Father, I desire that they also who, whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the earth. Oh, glorious Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. These know that you've sent me. I declared to them your name. What is Jesus praying for? Can you hear Jesus praying? Jesus is in heaven's sanctuary. He's in the most holy place at the days of the judgment hour. And Jesus is praying, Father, I desire, Father, I wish that... that that John or Mary or Pete or Alice, I wish they'll be with me. Lord, I don't have any other desire in my heart that's more important than this. Lord, I want my people to be saved. I want them to be in the kingdom of God forever. He thought of you in a garden that night 2,000 years ago, and he's thinking about you right now. Imagine this scene. The judgment is set. The books are opened. A thousand times ten thousand angels gather around that scene. 
Celestial beings from unfallen worlds gather around that scene. Cherubims and seraphims are there around that scene. The judgment is set and the books are open. The destinies of all humanity are to be settled. It is the most solemn moment in the history of the universe. And there, your name comes up before judgment. Angels are hushed. Cherubims and seraphims are quiet. All of heaven is quiet. Your name comes up before judgment. And as it does, the Christ that prayed for you in the garden stands forth with the scars of the wounded hands. And he says, Father, I desire. The words of John 17, 24 on his lips, Father, I desire that this my child be with me through all eternity. And all of heaven says, it's enough. The sacrifice of Christ is enough. The blood that flowed from his hands are enough. The forgiveness that flows from the cross is enough. It's enough. Saved in God's kingdom forever. And all of heaven begins to sing. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive riches and honor and glory forever. Jesus prayed for you 2,000 years ago. He prayed that you would be kept in his love. He prayed that you'd be sanctified by his word. He prayed that your heart would be at unity with others around him, around you. And he prayed that you, that you, that you would live with him in heaven forever. The Father will answer the Son's prayers for you. Walk through life filled with hope. Walk through life filled with encouragement. The battle wages, but all the demons in hell cannot take you from the hands of Christ. His prayers for you will be answered. Let hope fill your heart as Sophia sings. Thank you for listening to our daily devotional program. If you like what you have listened, please consider subscribing to our channel so that you will get daily notification. For more Christian references, please visit our website, www.beyondmycross.com. Have a great day and God bless you.